0: Welcome to Highest Aspirations, an education podcast that explores the world of English language learners and how we can make a greater impact. Each episode, we bring you voices from across the ELL community to discuss the issues that matter most. Highest Aspirations is brought to you by Elevation Education, your partner for ELL program management and instruction.
1: Hey everybody, welcome back. I'm your host, Steve Sophronis. What does rigor mean for students with interrupted formal education? How do we recognize and leverage the experiences newcomers bring to improve the education of all students? Why is it important that educators embrace a mindset that constantly challenges beliefs about students and what they're capable of? We discuss these topics and much more in our conversation with Carol Salva. Carol is a former elementary educator and has most recently taught newcomer English language development in both high school and middle school. She is a consultant with Seidlitz Education, where she specializes in using research-based sheltered strategies to teach grade-level content to unschooled and underschooled language learners. With proven success including these students in content area classes, Carol is able to support teachers to make these efforts practical and to the betterment of the general population. Let's get started. Welcome, Carol. You wrote the book, Boosting Achievement, Reaching Students with Interrupted or Minimal Education. Would you start by telling us why you decided to write that book and what you learned from writing it?
2: Oh, gosh, yes. And what I'm still learning. (laughs) Thanks. Thanks so much for having me, Steve. And to be able to talk about it, because that's one of the reasons that we wrote the book. And I want to say that I wrote it with a, a gal named Anna Mattis. She and I are co-authors on the book. Anna is also a sideless education training uh, consultant with me. And Anna and I decided to write that book because I was in the classroom and I was a teacher of students who had interrupted or minimal education. Some of them had no education. You know, they were um, coming straight from, and I wouldn't say they had no education. Parents educate their children. They were very... Um, clever students, but they hadn't had formal education. We were in a situation in my school district where we had received a new demographic in an area uh, that didn't have a lot of low socioeconomic English learners. We had English learners, international kids that come with tutors and translators and things like that. But we had that year a lot of refugees resettled into an area where we had the, some of the best teachers in this building, of course, but we just had not focused a lot of our English learner training uh, on this in this school because they they were doing fine without it and their their kids were being successful. So I at that time was a um, what we call a TOSA, a teacher on special assignment. I would go around the district and support and do trainings. So I was not a sideless education consultant back then. I was a a support person to our teachers. Anyway, we had 32 of these African refugees coming from places from the Congo, from um, Burundi, and just I, I can't even mention all of them because there were so many different cultures and languages in the room. And we're talking middle school. Did I mention? <laughs> Shout out to all the middle school teachers, <laughs> because there's, it's an age that already is is a bit of a challenge, you know? So these kids didn't speak each other's languages. They, a lot of them didn't know how to do formal school and the way we do it. And, and, and we had huge gaps in literacy they did, uh, many of these students had no literacy in their primary language. And of course, everybody or the majority of the class was brand new to the English language. So it's a long answer, but we, um, we went down a path of, uh, I, I went in and took over that class after trying to support them with very little success. <laughs> I mean, I felt like, so my, my boss sort of gifted me to that campus for half the day to really just roll up my sleeves and, and try to find solutions. And we got a lot of help. I had had training from Seidlitz education in the past. And when I talk about Seidlitz, I mean, just a language rich classroom, sheltered instruction. I'm talking about John Sidlitz and his company that, that does that. And so I'd had that kind of training, but this was a lot more than, than just ESL. Right. And, and so at the end of the day, it was very successful. You know, at the beginning, when I took over in in around November, it was a hot mess for a long time. It was I was just in over my head, and I asked for a lot of help. And we filmed a lot of what I was doing to try to get better. I had a partner teacher, Catherine Dierschke, who was a student teacher at the time, who took some of the younger kids for part of the day. Anyway, what I really longed for that year was a resource specifically about students who were lacking formal education. We didn't have it. So by the end of the year, we decided uh, uh, to write it. John Seidlitz and and Anna and some folks from his company came to see what I was doing. And they interviewed some of the kids. And and then we just set out to write the book.
1: That's great. And I think that deserves a long answer. So I'm glad you provided all that information. (laughs) And I'm also glad you mentioned um, Anna Mattis, who I, I neglected to mention. I have the book sitting right here, and I neglected to mention her as a co-author. Um, and John Seidlitz as well, who does a lot of great work uh, with English language learners in Texas.
2: Yeah. yeah, they're awesome. I'm honored that that's. it's been three years. And for the last two years, I've been still in the classroom, but I moved up to high school. And so the, a lot of those kids were in eighth grade. And so now they're in the high school where I am, because it's right next door. And, um, I, I went part-time with the high school every other day, teaching in the classroom, still same kind of demographic. And then I work for Sidelitz education on the other, on the other, uh, part-time. And so I go around the country, actually I go internationally, uh, training and consulting because Steven, it's been wildly successful. It's been amazing. And so I'm just honored to not just tell the kids' story, but to show how fast they can learn, and all the research-based te- uh, techniques that we're using—we're not making anything up. We're using what we know works um, as a in the field. And then, yeah, so this year is my last semester in the classroom. We just graduated a lot of. Uh, recent arrival students last weekend. We had prom. We had so many things, and now I'll be full-time consulting. So it's kind of bittersweet,
1: I imagine so. But I mean, I think you're in a great position to to reach a lot of teachers, like you said, not only in Texas and not only around the country, but internationally. And I do later, I do want to get into all the work that you're doing with your PLN both in person and virtually, um, because that's a very rich resource. So we'll dive into that a little bit later. I want to bring out a couple things that you that you I think surfaced when you were talking about how the book came along. Um, you yeah, know, I appreciate the fact that you talked about middle school um, being a difficult time. I have a middle schooler um, at home now uh, who's in seventh grade, and and she doesn't experience any of the. The issues that that some of these refugees and and students with interrupted formal education experience but it's still a difficult time i also appreciate you calling it at first a hot mess and 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 (laughs) recognizing that it's a learning experience and that this book sort of came about both by through your experience but also through recognizing that you know there a resource was needed and i also heard you talk about um how many of these an essential piece of this is that these students although they have interrupted formal education um it doesn't necessarily mean that they're not educated in other ways and that that brings me to this term rigor that that we hear pretty frequently in education it's a term that i I've, i don't know that i that i love the term but i think w- what it basically means is just making sure all students are challenged adequately in their education and i and i appreciate that as a as, as a definition. So,, I'm wondering if we kind of level set a little bit about what how you would define that that rigor and how it applies to those students that you worked with in middle school and who are now um in high school. How does it apply to students who have had that that interrupted formal education or who have come here um under under difficult circumstances? What is rigor to them?
2: Well, it's the same thing it is to your daughter and to my middle school kiddos, <laughs> because I feel you. I have middle schoolers also. and We don't want to give middle schoolers a, a bad rap out there. It's just, I remember being that age and it, it's such a, a turning point and a changing time. And um, we just want to support all those kids, like you said, as much as we can through everything they have going on. And so I, I think about my own, my own kiddos and your daughter and then these students Um, And I always go back to when we first met them. So when we first met them, they, and this is getting to rigor, I promise, (laughs) when we first met them, they didn't speak each other's languages. So there was a lot of frustration and a, a, a lot of that, in retrospect, it seems like it was, well, actually, right when we walked in, it's, they're 11, 12, 13 years old. A lot of boys frustrated. Even the girls were physically fighting with each other a lot because at first they were coming from places that were at war with each other. Uh, And then as a group, they may have all looked alike to us, but they were very different in the, in dialects and, and language and cultures. And so that was, I'm sure through their perspective, because you're saying, what does it mean for them? So through their eyes, how frustrating, right? You don't understand your teacher. You don't understand the people around you. You don't even understand the, the kids in your class. So it, It seemed like, I I know for the outsider, it looks like, how are they going to do eighth grade science? That's a state-assessed class. So when we think of rigor, we think of that eighth grade classroom. And we think of, you know, all of the things, tectonic plates and magma and pulleys and motion and force and (laughs) Newton's laws and everything that those students are having to learn. And that eighth grade teacher, when she hears the word rigor, she's thinking, how do I not only teach them? We can't stay at a knowledge level, right? We have to up that and have kids analyzing and doing things like comparing and contrasting things and applying their, their what they're learning in other situations and being creative. And you know, that to me is rigor, right? You take your curriculum, and you don't stay at the, I'm going to talk at you and tell you facts and you memorize them. That's the opposite of rigor. <laughs> you know, that's uh, giving low level tasks. And we want students, we want to grow students and have them at higher higher levels of thinking. So at the time, it was difficult to see this. And I didn't think about it at the time. At the time, you're just like in survival mode. Like, how do we get these kids to stop trying to kill each other and um, get them learning how to function in the school correctly and that kind of thing. But the reality, Stephen, the reality is every single one of those students that day that we met them could operate at high levels. They could absolutely understand magma. They can understand force and motion. They, you know, tectonic plates, Some of them have seen active volcanoes. So where we're trying to get my sons and your daughter in a classroom to interact with our curriculum, not only can that kid be a part of it, the the newcomer, the the student with interrupted formal education, they can deepen the learning. Get them in a conversation with your daughter about what they've seen, honor what they bring. And the rigor is going to go up because we're letting the students own the learning in that. And so then the challenge is how do you go from uh, students who are not – they're just not used to how we do class and how we – you know, if that's your big challenge, there's a couple of different ways to look at it. But let's just look at rigor. There's no reason those students cannot participate in rigorous – um, instruction. They can help you. They can deepen the learning of your classroom and they can do it. There's nothing wrong with them. They're not, it's not a special education issue. We're talking, we're talking about a lack of opportunity.
1: Yeah. And I, I, I love it that you, you know, you're taking, you're kind of getting to my next question that I wanted to bring up, which is this idea of, uh, looking at these students as assets. And I love it how you're personalizing it. And I think that people should look at it that way. Um, if I am sort of a, the parent of kind of a, a traditional student, so to speak, somebody who's not, um, does not an interrupted education, is not an English language learner, how great would it be for me to have that my daughter or my son interact with someone who knows what tectonic plates look like in action and hasn't just sort of memorized it from a book. So that's that's a great example, and that gets to this this in research and policy circles. And we we talked about it this before uh, we recorded the podcast. But the idea that this term super diversity probably hasn't trickled down to the classroom level, but we see it a lot in kind of scholar, scholarly articles and um, and and ways to explain the, the sort of quote unquote challenging circumstances under which um, some teachers are, are need to educate their kids. And what it, what it really speaks to is that you have what you've described. Lots of students from many, many different places coming together um, to, to, to kind of learn the same curriculum. So you got to this a little bit, but the idea of looking at this quote-unquote super diversity um, as an asset while maintaining um, a rigorous curriculum, what, what are some, um, uh, some kind of concrete things that teachers can do um, to, to bring those students out as assets?
2: Okay. So uh, the the situation that I was describing and the reason that I, how I got into working with this demographic was uh, everybody's situation seems to be unique. I mean, of course it, it is. Everybody's situation is different, but because uh, I travel now. And so some people have newcomer centers set up so that students can come in and spend a little bit of time acclimating to our um, uh, the way we do education here. And then other people don't. And some people have a group like I had where every student and 30 kiddos in the classroom that Catherine and I had were um, were all of the same. Um, they had the same challenges. You know, they were all new to school. They all needed to learn English and they were many had low levels of literacy. But then you have other folks who are, this is my situation this year. We don't really have that. We have a newcomer class, I have a newcomer class, which is just one class that meets every other day for 90 minutes um, where newcomers are in my classroom. And here's where super diversity to me, um, I'm, I mean, I've had my head down in the classroom for a while, so I had to go look up this term. And when, you know, it's interesting because even in all the articles and things that I saw about super diversity, it was kind of with this panic, oh, no, no. Look what's yeah. happening. We have it wasn't in a it wasn't in a positive sense. Even That's though the word "super" supers in there, it's not. They're talking about what do you do when you have not just. I mean, the the diversity is so. Um, your range is so huge. You know, you have students with affluence. And this is what my classroom looks like this year and for the last couple of years. We're on an energy corridor here in Houston. And so we have what we've always had at, at Stratford High School, which is stu- kiddos whose parents are president and, you know, executives in oil and gas. And they're so they're here uh, as an international student. So they're learning English, but their levels of literacy, they can teach our science classes, you know, things like that. And then we also have still our refugee population and our recent arrival immigrants who are coming for a better life and are struggling here. Um, and, you know, I've been low socioeconomic and maybe low levels of literacy in their primary language. And all of those kiddos are in my same class this year. So, and we have 82 different languages in our district, and many of those are represented in my newcomer class so your question about like what can teachers do to meet this challenge i think is that your question because I just was talking about super diversity
1: and (laughs) and i think like i think i think you're right and i think you you got to um maybe part of the answer to the question which is that it's there's so many different models out there for how we bring these students in so let's let's like let's uh, zoom in a little bit. So you're, 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 you know, what about in a, and I know you think a lot about comprehensive high schools and maybe like thinking about, um, shifting from sort of concrete, um, activities that, 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 that teachers can do, which they can find a lot of in your, in your book, by the way, I've looked through that, but also (laughs) the idea of, um, of mindset, like you talk about mindset, what, what's, what's the, could you explain the importance of mindset to us? If you're in a comprehensive high school, Maybe you have all these students coming in from different places like we talked about, or like you mentioned a little earlier, although super is a positive term. Super diversity is always the challenges of super diversity, not the assets right. of super diversity. So where right. does mindset play in there?
2: Yeah, so that's why it was kind of difficult for me to attack that question because I do now get to see so many different ways that people bring students in. So, But I love that you're going with mindset because I feel like it starts with mindset. It starts and ends with mindset. Mindset is everything. And I would say, I would. anybody listening to this podcast, you're halfway there if you're not already. And if I'm not out there learning from you right now, I probably should be. Because what we need to do, or what I've felt that I need to do, is make sure and challenge my beliefs all the time. Because I'm the biggest champion for these kiddos. I've seen them. I've seen them learn so fast. I've seen them gain so much English so quickly. And you can see it too. Like you said, I have videos of the kids on my site and there's plenty of examples out there. But even with that, if I don't challenge what I believe as a teacher all the time, my bar for where I know these kids can be starts to slip. So, and, and Catherine was one of the best things for me that first year. Catherine was a, a, she was a student teacher at the time. And now she's the newcomer teacher. You know, I left and she took over, she got licensed certified. And so Catherine was the best thing because she was learning and she kept challenging me. You know, we were a month in and I'd be like, oh my God. Okay. So the gen ed classes are doing author's purpose. I just don't see how we're going. And she'd like, oh, wait, I thought you said. That it's never the kid; it's always instruction. So, and I'm like, yes, Catherine, I said that before. <laughs> <laughs> I had real kids in front of me that are, all, you know. And so it was great because she and I were forced to plan together in a way that we know it's possible. So it's not the students; it's never the students. Somebody out there is doing this, or has some ideas, or can help can help me. So that's where I know we're going to talk about the PLN later and your Twitter group or your Facebook group or whoever or even in your building. Who's challenging your beliefs? who How are you challenging your own beliefs to, to set out and not um, not lower your expectations? because every one of those students can do it while they're learning English. While they're gaining literacy, they can hit your grade level standards. Uh, there's a couple of different um, things, like let's say math. They need some foundation math to do algebra in high school, but it's not like there's not a way to accelerate even that. And so, uh, but all the other things, like I said, science. Oh my gosh, social social studies, even language arts. There are many things at most of your grade level, if your standards, if you're if you're looking at your standards that your students can do. Mm -hmm. And so, but the mindset thing, if you, if you start to doubt that they can do it, you're right. They're not going to do it because you're, you're not going to give them what they need to do
1: it. Right. And you bring up such an important point, you know, as a, as a longtime teacher myself, I taught foreign language for years and, you know, you you find yourself siloed. Um, and it was similar to you. It was at the point where I started to work with student teachers that somebody was there to challenge my beliefs. Here I was, I thought that I, you know, I had taught every level of Spanish that the district offered. I was teaching the two AP courses. I was pretty successful. It was, I was bringing everybody in no matter what their experience was with Spanish to give them that advanced placement opportunity. But there were times when I'd just become exasperated. And I'd think what, you know, I'm doing everything I can here. How come things aren't progressing the way I want? When somebody said to me, well, you said this, or I've just been studying this, or I've observed this, that helps. So getting out of uh, silos, I think, both in your own classroom, in your own school, in your own community, um, is is so important. And that's a great way uh, for us to transition into what you just mentioned, which I think is hugely important. I want to spend some time talking about it. Um, you know, you, as a, both as a teacher, a professional development provider, now transitioning in consultant uh, into consultancy, you you rely very heavily. I know on your your thriving PLN on Twitter. I I, I follow you and many others, and I've learned just so much from that. Um, Thanks. And it's and it's all you know. It's in your pocket. It's virtual. It's there. And these are all things we hear about, sort of Twitter and PLNs all the time. But I'd love to dive a little deeper into hearing about how collaborating with others um, through that medium and others. Has, has improved your approach and how you feel it's improving other people's approach to maximizing impact on the students that we're working with.
2: Well, yeah, I have to say it's everything. <laughs> I say mindset's everything. Everything is everything, right?
1: I expected but that the, answer, yeah.
2: <laughs> I'm sorry. I follow you too, and I know that, we, um, that you feel the way that I do. And anybody who has gotten kind of sucked into the Twitter-verse I we we feel this way is that you know I hear this I don't know who first said this but when you're collaborating with people in your in your space or in your classroom or wherever you are the smartest person in the room is the room right I don't it's not one it's never going to be one person it's going to be what everybody brings collectively And so this is one of the reasons that we want students to collaborate, right? We as education professionals also uh, are encouraged to come together on our campuses and in different ways to collaborate. Because even if I, you know, know a lot about this one thing, I will benefit from um, my colleagues challenging me and also what they bring. I don't have their perspective and I don't know everything that they know. So that whole thing about the room, the smartest person in the room is the room. Well, then what if your room is the world, right? What if you're, what if the people you're collaborating with are from everywhere, with even more, you know, than what I can get in my physical space. I I go back and forth because I have the the, the luxury of working with a fantastic staff. Our school, I'm, I'm so glad I'm going to still be a parent at the school. My kids are going to be there because the teachers are phenomenal and they bring such a depth of knowledge. And so I go back and forth. I shift from what I can learn from them. And then I go out to my PLN and I find on Twitter, we're doing things like ELL chat book club. Um, which is a, a fantastic, you know, way to study a book. Um, just the ELL chat that Judy Haines uh, does every Monday night can challenge you, and not just challenge you, but give you a place for you to have a voice. Everybody there is bringing amazing ideas to the table, and so I'm I'm sad when I meet people who are say. I'm just not into it yet. I'm. De- I don't need it I, because I get it. They're getting their professional development elsewhere. I know, and it's good. And I know a lot of these people who are, you know, people I learn from. But I just feel like, wow, what if everybody was connected with everybody?
1: Yeah, <laughs> you know, it's really interesting, and you bring up a good point. It's one that I've that I've thought a lot about. I um I I. Work on the teaching staff of a course at the harvard graduate school of education called connected teaching in the digital age and one of the things We try to um, it's a graduate level course And one of the things we try to tell students or show students is that you know Twitter is this powerful tool And here you have a lot of the really young smart future leaders in education saying well, you know, this I just don't like the tool that the the Twitter itself. And I and it's a really hard thing to to get over. I mean, it sort of took me a while to figure out what does this hashtag mean, what does this at mean. Yeah. It's interesting because it's evolved so organically. It wasn't meant, obviously, to be a tool for, for teachers, but I think if I tell people all the time in the education space, it's the place where everybody goes. And I think, you know, in some ways it can be a little messy. I'm I'm admittedly not a person who Likes the synchronous conversations. That's why I I I, I pop on y'all will chat once in a while, but I, I can always find it later. That's what I like. I can oh, yeah, come back great. Mm-hmm. and it's 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 on demand. Um. So, but but I'm glad I'm glad we had a chance to talk about that. And and you know you 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 bring up a good point that you get PD from a lot of places. But boy, like you, um, not to sound it's not the tool, right? It's the room. And I love it how you mentioned that the smartest person in the room is the room. And what a I mean, you don't get a bigger um, more diverse room, uh, than than that. So that's wonderful. Mm. So let's talk about um another place where people can get information. Um, and we'll t- I want to I want to talk about uh, another resource that you have available. So I you have a podcast as well called Boosting Achievement. Um, I do. It's another really valuable resource for for I think all stakeholders for English language learners or really educators in general. Um, what are some of the goals of that? project and 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 then how can people find it or how can people learn from it
2: well thank you and I do love that podcast I've we're up to um like 30 episodes and we put one out almost every week so it's been it's been kind of fantastic it's it's a place for me to reflect but first and foremost and so I encourage people a lot to blog, or to podcast, or even just to journal, old school, because that reflection, just like we went with the students, that reflection is where I do a lot of my tweaking and growing. I feel like you know, and so every week uh, or so, <laughs> I I I put out a show that I hope is, uh, is going to be helpful to other teachers who teach language learners. And so sometimes it's me by myself talking about what happened recently in my classroom. And I try to have an objective for that, (laughs) for that ramble. And, you know, I, I, it's on voice ed Canada and so if you're not following Voice Ed Canada, it's just at Voice Ed Canada and you can find it at voiced.ca. There's so many education podcasts at that website. And I joined that group because I was listening to education radio and I was listening to podcasts like yours and thinking, you know, this is, this is great. This is good PD in my pocket. Like you said, PD, that's free to me. And then I was approached by them to, to join uh, a weekly show called On Ed Mentors. So that's in Ontario, it's out of Ontario, but they have teacher candidates and seasoned teachers come together each week and talk about things that the, that the new teachers or new to be teachers want to know. And so I joined that group and then eventually they just said, you just need to have your own podcast. The guy named Stephen Hurley, who does the, who runs the network it's just like just do it, you know. Just help for whatever your purposes are, do it, and it will help others. And so I love that it has grown. It's pretty relaxed. Um, I find your podcast very, um, yours seems real legit, Steve. <laughs> I, I don't
1: <laughs> know how to, I don't know how to take that. I don't know if that's a. It's a compliment. It's such a compliment.
0: <laughs> Thanks. It yeah, is.
1: I, I, well, I think like you know you, you need. I don't know how. I, I think our started. Um, because we were creating this community, and people started to look at Elevation as more more than just a purveyor of the products that we have. Um, yeah. I was a, I was a trainer for 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 our company for about a year and a half before we started this, and we said, you know what? Like, let's we can bring in some people like you and others to talk about issues that are affecting everyone. And I think, I don't know if that's how, I guess we're we're getting to a different topic now, which is pod, a podcast episode about podcasts, but I think it's, it's, but re- I like it. it's relevant. It's important because there's, there's, you know, maybe you, maybe you find the informal one or the reflective one a little bit more useful than the other one, but they're both there. And I love it that you can kind of like go to the podcast. I can go to yours and I can scan through and say, oh, like uh, this is great. I want to listen to this episode with, with Emily Francis, who we're also speaking with on here and, and it'll be a little bit different. So um, That's
2: it. That's what I love about podcasts is that there's something for everybody. And I I am not worried in my podcast that it's too long or too short or too rambly or too anything. Or, the, or, you know, it's again, it's for me. And then I appreciate everyone listening. So many people reach out and say, you know, when's the next episode coming out? And they have it in iTunes that they download it every time. And so I'd love that. Because again, they're bettering the work with it when they when they comment or they write back or they maybe I'll have them on my show. Um, but there's something for everyone, so I'm I'm subscribed to yours, and I know it's a very different kind of podcast than mine. But that's what I want. I want different uh, ways and different. Um, I just want a variety of ways to personalize my learning. And yours is solid. I'm impressed. I know you're always going to have guests where I'm going to walk away learning something and hearing from somebody new. And I think you're a great interviewer. And so it's um, I just love that it's out there for everybody. And I also want to say a shout out. If you're interested in podcasting before we get off of that, I could connect you with Stephen Hurley to anyone listening because he is helping people start podcasts. And he wants to meet anybody in education who's interested in being on our network. So there's that.
1: That's great. And we'll put that in the condensed blog version, which we'll put on our website and we'll send everyone I'll I'll provide a list of resources. And I think that's great. And I think podcasting seems like this daunting thing, but it's really not that difficult um, Mm -hmm. as I, as I think we've, we've, we've both learned. So I'm glad we talked about that. And I hope people will, uh, will take a look at yours. And again, we'll put all that stuff in the show notes. Um, I want to transition a little bit to some sort of personal and professional development questions for you. Um, you've written a book, which is wonderful, but is there, you're welcome. Is there a book or other resource that has had an important influence on you either personally or professionally that you'd like to share with, with our listeners?
2: Well, if I had to say to somebody who, um, you know, my, the demographic that I'm working with in the book is for kiddos with interrupted formal education, right? We wrote boosting achievement um, to, to fill that, that niche. And so, but I'm always asked, you know, well, what about for our campus or our whole district? And um, some people do take that book and train everyone with it because then you're able to work with all different language learners. But if I had to say what influenced me before we ever wrote that book and give people one resource, I would have I would just, and I've always said this. it's a book that John Seidlitz wrote a while back called "The Seven Steps to a Language Rich Interactive Classroom." There's so much it there's there's many reasons why. when I walked in and there were so many things going on with that um that group at the middle school, so many things that were beyond just English as an additional language. And um, but it's still it was amazing. Those seven steps, I had had a lot of training in that my my district had p- purchased that book years before I had been doing it in my own classroom, these very practical seven steps. And it, and you know, when we turned around and looked at what really was working. It was those steps because they go beyond teaching a student English they or just having a language-rich classroom. There are things built into those steps that honor kids for what they bring. They address classroom management and wait time and environmental print and so many things. Um, and so a lot of teachers swear by these seven steps. And you can Google side seven steps and just find so much out there. People are really sharing it a lot. But the book itself was a huge influence on me. And I still, um, I don't do any trainings without kind of going through what that looks like because it it's just a way to, there, there's so many things built into it, accountability, but also giving the kids opportunities to speak. And those things hit many, many, many things that we want for all students. We can come back to your daughter and my son's and the other students who might be new to the language in their classroom. And if I'm doing those seven steps and I have a language rich classroom, everybody's going to benefit your daughter, my son, and all of those kids because of the way that I'm uh, running the classroom that I love the book because it is so practical. It is so easy. It is a short read and people can start doing many of the things the very next day. And so I'm super grateful to john sidelets and bill perryman who wrote that book because it uh, and, and they offer that training and we still it's our most requested training at Seidlitz. so i give that training and other people give that training and it'll change your life it'll just change your life so that's probably if i had to say one book it's going to be the seven steps
1: that's great. And that's a hard question to answer when somebody yeah, says it so is. that's what, <laughs> But that's a, it you, is. you gave uh, some really good reasoning. And I love it that you, you know, it's funny, 90% of the interviews I do with people are just talking to people, come back to, this is good for all students. And yeah. if we can have a resource that will allow us, and I think one of the, mis- not mistakes, but one of the problems with some of the resources that are geared toward English language learners is that they just talk about those students when we're really talking about how can we benefit everyone in that asset-based approach to um, the diversity that we're, or the super diversity that we're, that we're seeing in our classes.
2: It is an asset. It is a beautiful thing. It is when, when all of these things come together and there's many, there are many layers to helping this demographic, but when you start to hit on, but what can we do for that student that's good for That all the students in the building, not just in this classroom, what's going to accelerate their learning? One of the biggest things that people freak out about is the whole, what I said at the beginning, they don't know how to do school. They're new to formal education. Well, you know what? Include those students in your mainstream classes and in your mainstream comprehensive schools. And those are the least of your problems, because first of all, they learn English very quickly. Again, there's no cognitive delay when we're just talking about somebody who's new to the language. And then things like clubs, things like, um, you know, yeah, you might want to have a newcomer class if you can, that would be fantastic like mine. But if you don't include them in clubs and things, because they learn how to do school much faster than you would think. Actually, For young people, they want to be like everyone else. So you have that working to your advantage is that they're looking at the other students and they'll take the cue and how to walk through the lunch line and how to get your books. And they just need they just need somebody who can communicate with them at the beginning to show them the ropes. And it's it's that's not a big issue. We do actually have an issue when you segregate the students. And Because in, in, with the best of intentions, and there's a lot of great things that can happen when you focus on this demographic apart from all the other things going on. But one of the things you lose in that is that they're, when they're not included, they they don't have the, the models around them of your mainstream kiddos and how, you know what I'm saying?
1: Absolutely. Yep. And I think that's, you know, it's, it's, there, there's a lot of different ways to do it. And I think that, we could talk a lot about all the different models um, that are out there and and their advantages and disadvantages.
2: I want to make sure that I say that yeah, that I haven't really seen any models that couldn't work brilliantly, because I don't go, I haven't gone anywhere where I haven't walked away going, wow, this, you know, this is a great place for these students. Now they might be asking me to come to give some strategies or to give something, but newcomer centers are phenomenal to give kids a a safe place to integrate into, you know, public education. If you don't have a newcomer center, your comprehensive schools are a great place. You can create a safe part of it for them. Um, You know, I just, all of the models, like you said, have pros and cons. So let's stop dwelling on the cons and let's go with the pros of your model and then the sky's the limit.
1: I think that's a a great way to sort of wrap this up, but I have one more question for you, um, and that is, we've talked about your book, we've talked about your podcast, we've talked about some of the other resources, but I'd, I'd really like everybody to know how um, they could find out more about your work or collaborate with you. What's the, What are some of the best places, where are some of the best places to go to find out more about what you're doing?
2: Oh, that's so great. Um, probably the best one-stop shop would be my website, and it's a blog, it's a teacher blog. Um, so it's Salva I get a lot of Silva that's wrong there's no I in my name it's Salva salVAC for Carol Salva dot and so if you find my blog it's about newcomers not just at grade level but beyond grade level there's there's everything there from the blog to the podcast and also so many videos um, of not just me giving professional development and talking and giving models. Uh, I mean, and showing the students themselves uh, we have permission. They're, they're fantastic students who have gained enough English to turn around and tell you what accelerated their learning. We have, um, like I said, I'm in high school. We just had graduation. And a lot of the students who graduated have been keynote speakers at um, Conferences. They've done Mad PD, which is a uh, an online conference. The students gave a student panel, so you can you don't have to take my word for it. You can listen to the students themselves talk about uh, what they had to do, and they do have to work hard. But also, what support? We can't just tell them work hard, work hard. You can do it. We have to give them support. So the students themselves talking about that support a place that people might want to know about um, that is coming up in the near future on June 23rd, we're having virtue L and that is an online conference specifically for people who are um, support language learners. Uh, Jana Echeverria is our keynote speaker. And what's exciting about that conference. uh, I put it on with Ton Nguyen, who is also, he's at ELL classroom. He is, um, we put on a a conference so that everybody there's no registration. We don't need your email. None of that. You just need to have YouTube. And if you have YouTube, it's one of the best ESL conferences out there. Tan um, I'm sorry. I said his name, his handle wrong. His Twitter handle is T a N E L L classroom. And he's in Laos and I'm in Houston but this is our second year to put on this virtual conference. And we have some amazing speakers like Emily Francis and Valentina. You can find me there. I'll be presenting there with Tina Bean. And But you can find all of that also on my blog, salvac.eddyblogs.org.
1: That's great. Thanks so much. And I'm glad you mentioned virtual. I've been hearing a lot about it and excited to it see yeah, to see how that all works. I'm sure it's going to be great. Certainly getting a lot of buzz right now on Twitter and uh, and deservedly so. So Carol, thank you so much for taking the time. It's been a great conversation. I'm glad we finally got a chance to uh, to chat and uh, looking forward to collaborating further in the future.
2: Well, I do want to say before we wrap up a big thank you to you because it is it is something extra that you took on. We have a great respect for elevation, and I, we love what everything you guys are doing in the field with your products, but now that you are giving us more opportunities to learn whether people have your products or not. and Just kudos to you, Steve, for for doing this podcast, and it's just a a great honor of mine to contribute to it. So thank you.
1: Well, thank you. We couldn't do it without you all. So much appreciated, all the work that you've done.
0: Okay. Thanks. (laughs)